Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining me today is Victor Gaxiola, co-founder of Tech Girl Financial, head of marketing and an investment advisor. Thanks for joining me, Victor. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Um, I was very excited when I got the invitation because you had interviewed my wife, Kim, which we'll probably talk about, who was, I think, episode 137 as she was uh, accepting the Spirit of Cambridge Award. And uh, so I listened to her podcast, very excited to have her. And I was like, when I got the invitation, I was like, oh, I get to do it too. So I'm really <laughs> excited to be here. That's great. Well, we're glad to have you. So if you've listened to Kim's or other advisors' podcasts, you probably know I like to start with the beginning, if you will, of the career in our industry. Start with your journey and how did you get to where you are today? Well, uh, my journey really started like most advisors uh, from the standpoint that, you know, working as a financial professional wasn't really my first career. Uh, it was actually my second career. Uh, after graduating from college, I actually spent quite the first 10 to 11 years of my career working both in the hospitality industry, working for hotels, and also the airline industry, uh, always in a role either in customer service or sales or marketing. And so those first 10 and 11 years of my career were amazingly instructive on what it meant to be able to deliver a product, but at the, the same time, work for a large organization. So in the airline industry, I ended up working for United Airlines and I went into it just like thinking, this is it. I'm gonna work in the airline industry my entire career. And like most people was taking all the steps to learn about the job and what it took to get to the next level. And so in those years that I was at United, I actually had a very fast paced career trajectory. You know, so cycling from one job to the next, one job to the next, extremely ambitious. And I had set my sights and at some point being in the C-suite. So yeah, right off the gates, extremely ambitious. And I think I was following in the path that I saw my father who had had his career through IBM his entire life. And he ended up retiring after 35 years of working with United, uh, working for IBM with a pension and all the things that came with it. So I kind of was trying to model my career around his by picking one strong company, a household name that could provide a lifestyle. And then uh, how did financial services catch your attention? Well, you may all recall, um, unfortunately it was out of tragedy. Um, when 911 happened, uh, two of our airplanes at United were involved, one in Pennsylvania, one in the World Trade Center. And unfortunately, it really created a massive changes all over the country, but specifically within the airline industry and at United Airlines, it forced us into bankruptcy. And it was a very sobering reality that when you work for a large organization that has you know hard times, that they have to make some really tough decisions. And so all around me, I was seeing that many of my peers were being let go as layoffs were happening, much of what we're seeing in the tech industry now. And, um, it, it, you know, having been in that trajectory of rising quickly and as far as jump, jump going from one job to the next, uh, the reality set in that a lot of the jobs that I would have been trying to get were, were no longer available because they were letting people go or because we were in banks, bankruptcy proceedings, they were being filled by people from other airlines. Uh, United had to prove to its creditors that it was making changes. 
And so, you know, as a, in my mid thirties, I was looking at this and, and I lost a lot of faith in my ability to be able to get to the C-suite at United if I was going to be in this, you know, holding pattern for a long time. Um, and I was more likely to see a job loss or potentially a salary cut sooner than me being able to see any sort of promotion and increase. And so that's really where I was. And uh, Kim had formerly worked in the airline. Uh, she had formerly worked in the financial services space when we were living in Miami. And, uh, you know, I went to her and like any husband and wife team or a husband and wife had a, a conversation. I said, I really don't think that United Airlines is the right place for me, that maybe it's time for me to be thinking about, you know, going somewhere else. And it was actually her suggestion that said, well, you know, You've worked in sales, you've worked in customer service, you know what it means to relate to people. I think you'd be really good at working in the, in the financial services space. And so I challenged her. I said, if you can find a firm that would take us on as a husband and wife team, I'm open to the idea. And so she went to work, as you know, and she actually found uh, AG Edwards, which was based in St. Louis at the time. And they took us in as a husband and wife team. And that's really what got me into this financial services space. So great story. I love that you had your sights set on the C-suite and when faced with an obstacle, you just created your own C-suite and uh, you, look, you made it. You made it to the C-suite. You co-founded Tech Girl Financial with Kim. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the process of what you guys went through when you were building your business. There's lots of risks. I know that she was already potentially on a particular journey, but um, you guys have changed and grown a lot since those early days when you partnered together. So what did, what did that look like? How did it feel? Well, you were right. Absolutely. Having, having come off the experience with United Airlines, being your own boss was very attractive. You know, it was, it, and, and in this case, working with Kim, it was like, well, the only person that could really fire me other than our clients would be her. And that would, and if she's firing me, we have bigger problems to worry, <laughs> you know, ahead of us. So the uh, entry point as far as trying to think about, you know, how we go about co-founding a business, how we go about building a business, what I think we took a very unique approach. Maybe it's not so unique, but I think it is because we actually started with the end in mind. Uh, you know, I mentioned that when I was going into United, I was thinking in my head, setting my sights for the C-suite. I also thought this way when it came to starting, you know, Tecro Financial, which at the time was the Gaxiola Financial Group. It morphed into Tecro Financial. But with the end in mind, we said, uh, we sat down and we had a conversation about what we wanted this business to be. And it started with, with us defining what success would look like. You know, what would success look like in us doing this business? At United, it would have been if I made it to the C-suite. But in this particular case, we said, how do we define it? And we broke it down into a couple of different parts. The first one that we decided as far as what success would look like was that we would make enough, or, you know, we would have enough salary uh, income in order for us to maintain a lifestyle that would allow us to pursue our passions. So we love to travel. We love spending time entertaining with friends and family. And so if we could build this business to the point where we can have that, uh, we'll be happy. We also were just starting a family uh, with two kids at home. We said, we also wanna be present in their lives. So success for us would be that we would be able to build a business and still maintain a very healthy relationship with our kids. You know, not be present, go to the baseball games, go to the, the recitals, 
you know, be present in their lives, be involved in our community. So that was another measure of success. And then I'd say that the last one, and this is key because it plays into our marketing and it plays to how we position ourselves with clients and prospects is arrive at a point where working would be optional. So the work optional lifestyle. So we would work because we want to and we love it as opposed to we have to. And so those were the measures of success. So with that in mind, when we started our business, we knew it's going to take a while for us to get there. And for us being a husband and wife team, it's going to require us to have some balance, uh, you know, uh, to be able to separate when we are working on the business and focus on the business and also still, you know, uh, investing in our own relationship, a personal relationship. And so I think that part of that conversation and the building of the business and success, a lot of it played into what kind of clients do we want to serve? And what we found and discovered is that they are very much like ourselves. We want to serve people who share with common and shared values. We want to serve people who are a reflection of us and an extension of our own family. And, um, and we knew going in that that was going to take a while. Uh, we knew going in that that was going to require us to take make some sacrifices early on because being so selective uh, was going to be expensive and expensive by the way that it was going to take longer than it probably would for most to build a business to the point where we are now. You hit on a lot of really good key points. A lot of the advantages honestly of being self-employed running your own business the whole I mean let's be honest probably if you had made it to the C-suite of United being present would have been a little bit more difficult. Corporate mm -hmm. America, at least back then, I, I do think generationally, even in larger companies, it's getting better, maybe is the right word, um, even though some people don't think so, that they can, ha you know, even large companies are starting to promote well-balanced well lives and potentially try to offer that as a benefit to their employees, but it wouldn't have been back then. You would have been working a lot. Um, and so you do... You are in control of that in your own business, but there's some risks too. Talk about, you said you used the word sacrifice. Um, there's also a little bit of anxiety, I think, when you're running your own business that you aren't getting there fast enough and you do have to make those sacrifices. How did the two of you work through, the, through those things? Well, I think that's a good question. I think that the way we work through it is that sometimes it's easier to define what you don't want to be than defining what you want to be. And, and the best story I could probably share to that end is, you know, when we first started in this business together, we were working in a branch environment. So there was about 17, 18 other advisors uh, in the space that we were working with. And so, you know, being new to the business, I mean, I spent a lot of time kind of observing how they worked, how they talked to clients, their approach to things. And I remember we had an event, we had a guest speaker coming in. And we were encouraged at the branch to invite, you know, clients and prospects to this event. And so all of us, you know, went out to our book of business and we had about 200 people in a room uh, for this guest speaker who was coming to talk about the economy. And of course, Kim and I, having just started out, we, ha we had maybe about a half a dozen people as our guests, so not too many. Others who were more established had 20, 30 people at this event. And so we got a kind of got a sense of, you know, the branch and the types of clients that they had. And we'd seen this when they would come in for appointments and such. 
And of course, the makeup of, of the group that was there tended to be older. We were in our mid-30s, and most of the people were there more in their mid-60s to 70s. And uh, as you do in a cocktail networking situation, I was with one of the more senior advisors, uh, just you know, having a cocktail, just enjoying the people as they were coming in and such. And I remember this one older gentleman came, and he was kind of into our circle, and uh, he started talking to the older advisor that was to my right. And uh, after a while, the advisor asked him, he said, so, sir, who, who are you here with? Like, who is your advisor? And the guy, the older guy looked at him and stared at him for a while, like flabbergasted and said, well, Jim, it's you. <laughs> oh, no. And Jim, of course, you know, he was kind of flustered. And then, oh, of course, you know, he just kind of like, it came to. And I remember there, very impressionable, said, I never want to find myself in a situation where I don't even recognize my own client. And so to answer your question, and when you're forming this business, part of it is defining what you want to be, but a lot of it was defining what you don't want to be. And so I, I learned so much just from that one interaction that it, when Kim and I kind of regrouped and I shared the story with her, I said to her, we are going to be really uh, selective when it comes to choosing who we want to work with, because I want to know these people. I really want to know them. I, I want when the phone rings to be excited about having a conversation with them, to be uh, welcoming and approachable. Uh, such that when we have that conversation, I'm not shying away and I'm not knowing who the person is on the other side of the line. So that's, you know, when it came to building the business, I think it was very important for us to establish who we wanted to work with. And, and, at this, and I had recently read a book by Nick Murray and Nick Murray used to actually talk about when you're building a practice, think about you're building Noah's Ark and you get to choose who you get who gets to go on the ark? And that was a big difference for most businesses. When I worked at United, we couldn't choose who our passengers were. When I worked at Weston, I couldn't choose who was staying at the hotel. But here again, as you said, as the C-suite of TechRoll Financial, I get to choose who comes in the door. That's right. And that empowered us to be selective. Great advice. I love it. So before we switch directions here for a little bit, who, what's the ideal client? We probably should tell the audience. So we know that you built your business with the ability to be selective and work with those people that you that resonated for you and, and Kim and your core values. But who, who are they? Talk a little bit more about the ideal client. Uh, the ideal client, someone with a whole lot of money and doesn't ask a lot of questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it, it, for us, I think the ideal client, as we've discovered, is really, like I said, somewhat of a reflection of us but not necessarily in looks or such. It's more a reflection of us in shared values. Um, we find that the best client and the ideal clients are those that have enough money, obviously, to be able to make decisions as to their own lives and be able to maintain a lifestyle, uh, who are responsive to our, you know, to our calls, responsive to our messaging, also who have a pretty good idea about what they want to get out of this relationship uh, and that they value the relationship that they, I, I find that most of the clients that not only do we love having, but I think that appreciate and value the, the role that we play um, certainly 
understand that this is an exchange, that this is, I, we're providing a certain value that is either saving them time, saving them money, uh, saving them and giving them peace of mind more than anything. Uh, and I think I, I, I know I wouldn't be the only uh, financial professional that says that the best compliment we can get is when someone says, you know, I trust you because this is a trust business. I mean, one of the things that I discovered very early on in this business, and it was one of the reasons why I was a little hesitant to get into it was that you don't have to know the numbers as much as you have to know people. This is a people business. And so my background in communications, uh, sales, marketing, that informed me more than the economic 101 classes I took when I was in college. Um, because the rest is learned. You can learn that. You can't learn what it is to be empathetic. You know, you can't learn sympathy. That you either have that or you don't. And so that's really what's allowed us to have more success. So when it comes to, you know, our ideal client, it's very important that everything we do reflects who we're looking to, to help. But then those people that come to us value that help. Great. Thank you for sharing that. All right, let's let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about that marketing and communications. As head of marketing, you've got a, I know you've got a strong passion, both of you do, for digital innovation. While you were founding Tech Girl Financial, how did that perspective start the trajectory of making sure that you could use digital innovation or just in innovation? But I know you do leverage tech. Obviously, you wouldn't have named your firm Tech Girl Financial if you didn't uh, have a passion around that. But how does that help your business? So I mentioned that I was a uh, communications major when I went to UCLA. And so I've always been a fan of technology and digital innovation, especially as we've seen it kind of evolve from the standpoint that, you know, we're the last generation that remembers the world before the internet. And so part of understanding, you know, when the internet came out, I was just fascinated by the fact that it allowed us to connect with other individuals, but in a strange way, uh, connect with brands. And a lot of that is really what I saw that social media was doing. And so uh, when we were building the business at the same time, kind of parallel to that on a personal level, started using social media and digital to connect with friends and family. And I thought to myself, wow, uh, here we are in an industry that champions this whole know your customer and we are being given and in my mind it was like a gift that social media exists from the standpoint that here people are readily sharing the things that matter in their lives they were posting pictures of vacations they were posting pictures of you know going to the kids recitals uh, awards what they were working on on linkedin their accomplishments at work and so for me it was like you know, giving me an entree into their lives. And I thought to myself, this industry needs to embrace this tool because it's going to make us better advisors. Um, this was around 2010, 2009. So there was very little regulations uh, stipulated specifically to what advisors could do and could not do. And at the time, the firm we were working with was, the answer was very simple. It was a big no, just you just can't do it. And I just thought this is a really missed opportunity. And I recall a webinar, and I've shared this story with many of my colleagues. Uh, there was a webinar that was put together, which was talking about how do you go about embracing social media in this space, a financial services space. 
and Cambridge had one person from compliance on that call and they had a solution. They had found a way to be able to provide their client, uh, their advisors, the ability to use and leverage social media to connect with prospects and to connect with their own clients in a compliant way. And I remember it kind of planted a seed in my head because we were looking to make a change. And, uh, and so we looked into Cambridge and sure enough, you know, through the new century council and through the guidance of people like yourself, Amy, who had the foresight and understanding that you needed to provide the tools to your advisors to be able to provide, you know, the services that they need and the connection points that it makes available that uh, we made the switch. And, you know, day, day two, we had our LinkedIn profiles, we had our Facebook profiles, we had our Twitter accounts, and we started using social media the way it should be used. And so digital innovation has been a big part of our practice, uh, like I said, to fill that need of knowing our customer, but be able to make those connections and to be able to share content. We appreciate those of you, um, such as uh, Tech Girl Financial, who are willing to be the guinea pigs. Early adopters <laughs> make a huge difference mm -hmm. here because you, in the end, help us build uh, the right approach for perhaps those that aren't quite as savvy but need to get into the space. So thank you very much for being there Good. for us at the beginning. How do you keep up with the trends in this environment and then ensure that you're remaining competitive in this space? Because that was back then, today, there's all kinds of stuff out there. So how do you determine where you should be spending your time? Well, uh, there was a, about a six to seven month stint after we joined uh, Cambridge that we were working together after having reestablished our business when we made the move uh, and we rebranded to, towards Tech Girl Financial that once kind of everything was set in, uh, I actually was had a very good conversation with Kim and said, you know, I really think that there's a lot here as it relates to social media, as it relates to digital technology in the financial services space that I actually left the business to work at, in, on the vendor side. So still tied to financial services. However, working now on the other side, which was to work with organizations and companies to build the tools uh, that were going to empower you know, advisors to be able to connect with their clients, because I was very interested in that space, having had you know, that communications background. And it was interesting for these large vendors it was attractive to them to have a, you know, in their head, a former advisor who was more now a consultant to tell them what would work and what wouldn't work. And so it was um, a fun time for me to not only establish new relationships in the, in the vendor space that was supporting our industry, but also to be able to be informative as to what would work and what wouldn't work. And so when I came back to the business and rejoined Kim, there was a little, it was a little bit sobering because everything that I was professing that advisors needed to do, now I had to do it. You know, I had to put my money where my mouth was, right? And be able to prove that these things that I had been championing for five, six years were truly, you know, worth pursuing. And so the good news is I've managed to maintain so many of my relationships with the people who work on the vendor space. I've also attended a number of conferences that support the financial services with new digital innovation and ideas. And part of it is just wanting to keep a finger on the pulse as to where things are going. Um, what you quickly discover is that our industry is not unlike any other industry. 
And I think one of the challenges that we have in financial services is that we should stop benchmarking ourselves against other financial services firms because our real competition is what is Amazon doing? What is Target doing? What is the Ritz-Carlton doing? What is FedEx doing? Client expectations are not set based on what financial services is doing. It's based on what every other business is doing to serve their needs. And so that's where I saw digital really playing a role uh, and wanting to keep an eye on not just the innovation within our industry, but innovation in general and how it applies to us. What are one or two things in the digital space that you guys have leveraged that you're still doing today that are working so that our listeners can potentially consider exploring that as you look at those outside competitors? Like how, how has that perspective changed your approach? Well, you don't have to give I away think, your secrets. Uh, just well, uh, high well, level. well, the thing is one may be a little bit surprising because it's so old school, but it's our website. I mean, we're constantly tinkering with our website and ensuring that it is really reflective of who we are as a business and what the value proposition is. Um, and so we're making constant changes to our website, not major changes, they're just like little tinkerings here and there. Uh, ex we, we experiment with uh, different content, we experiment with placement on pages, the language that we use. Um, one thing that, you know, very early on when I rejoined Kim, she uh, challenged me in saying, we need to revisit the website. And I took a look at it and I said, if you know, there was a newness coming back to the business that allowed me to see things through with fresh eyes and saying, if you go to the website, does it make it clear who we're looking to serve? Does it make it clear who we are? It, it doesn't have that approachability that would make someone comfortable. And so one of the areas that we focused on was changing uh, the website language, a lot more visuals. And it, and it was interesting because it was not about us. Like the website can't be about us. It, it can't be pictures just of us and this is what we do. It's more, who are you? Uh, what are your needs? Uh, and here, 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 this is what we do to serve. And so immediately we changed the picture so that people who would log in would see themselves in the website. Get away from the, you know, the lighthouse uh, the old couple walking down the beach, the old imagery that is just stale in our industry. And instead we have pictures of, you know, people who are women who are cooking, women who are snowboarding, surfing, you know, living the lifestyle. Because the question that we ask on our website, and it's prominently on our homepage, is what will you do when your money works for you? That's our tagline. What will you do when your money works for you? And so we're asking this question to our our, our prospects and to our clients. Define it for yourself. What is that? What does that work optional lifestyle look like? And we want it reflected on the website. And there it is. So establishing that relatability and then tinkering with things here and there uh, helps us kind of take a look at the analytics to see if we're getting the kind of website visits. And let me tell you, it works because lately we've been getting a lot more appointments directly through the website. And when we ask people, you know, how they found us, they say, you know, well, we, we, I went on Google and pull, put in some data and you popped up and you look like the type of people we want to work with. So it's doing its job. Uh, we say at Tech Girl that our website is our hardest working employee. It's 24 seven uh, and it's constantly there. 
and it needs to reflect who we are. But more importantly, we want our prospects and clients to look at it and see themselves in it. So that's one area. And then the other area, which is this, is podcasting. Um, I was so excited when I got back into the business to see how much the industry had evolved and accelerated and that within Cambridge, that doing a podcast was something we could do. And so we very quickly started using the podcast as an opportunity to share quality content in a format that we found people were really embracing. And um, we've had guest speakers and it's provided an outlet for us to be able to uh, expand you know, our business by bringing in people who are extensions of our own network who still work within financial services, but have a level of expertise in taxes or estate planning or mortgages and having them come on the show as guests allows us to create all these little chapters in this big volume of books of content and relationships that we have at our disposal. So that now if we have a prospect or a client who approaches us and this has happened where they said, Hey, we're looking at, you know, refinancing or doing a mortgage again, uh, who do you know? And we say, oh, well, before that, you got to listen to this podcast with Janine because she is awesome and she will answer a lot of the questions that you might have. Uh, same on the estate planning side, same on the tax planning side. So it's been an invaluable resource for us to be able to share more about ourselves through the podcast, but at the same time, bring in some amazing people. Great examples. Thank you. Um, I'm going to change gears again in the spirit of time here. I want to talk a little bit about the fact that you're a member of our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Advisory Council. So mm -hmm. thank you for that, for your participation. We wouldn't be who we are without our financial professionals stepping up and helping us um, tackle certain initiatives. And this is certainly one of them, especially um, it has been for a long time, but especially over the last few years. So share with our listeners your role on that council and what you've learned so far as a member. Well, thank you. I'm new to the council and excited to be a part of it. Uh, Kim was part of the New Century Council for many years, and I know that it was extremely valuable for her to be on the council based not only on her contributions, but also the people that she met along the way. And so I was hoping to have a similar experience by being part of the council and also being able to you know, give of both my time and, and my background. Um, I am a first-generation Mexican-American. I actually grew up speaking Spanish at home as my first language. Uh, to this date, when I pick up the phone and if I call my mom, we're speaking Spanish. Uh, if I pick up the phone and I call my dad, even though he was also from Mexico, he speaks English. So we kind of go back and forth. Uh, the thing is that you know my whole life, uh, I've been breaking stereotypes because if you see me and I know you do and I, you can't do it on the podcast, I don't look like what most people would think of when they think of a Mexican uh, or in this case, a Mexican-American. And so part of my joining the council, I think, was driven by want to drive some awareness of the fact that we all bring something to the table and sometimes we may be different than what we may appear and that we bring more to the table than what might appear at first sight. Um, my cultural background certainly informs who I am uh, and I definitely identify with my culture, but it doesn't define who I am. And so I think that very early on as being part of this council, everybody brings to the table 
a, a certain and unique background. But what I've I found extremely enlightening is that we all identify first and foremost, we're financial professionals. And we're financial professionals who in my case happens to also be a Mexican-American father, husband, son, and friend. But I don't lead with Mexican-American. And I'm finding the same thing with the council that we all are professionals who are, and then fill in the blank. And I think that that when you bring in a mixed group of people with shared values and maybe not the same backgrounds that we just really enhance the organizations that we work with. And I, I, I have found that we have to lead with curiosity. You lead with that curiosity to learn more about the people that you're with, to find those points of connection, because believe it or not, we're all a lot more similar than we really are different. And so I think this is informed in how we built our business how we relate with people in general, I've always made it a point to find that connection point with everybody I meet. If I can identify that one thing that makes us similar, whether it's where we went to school, where there, where we live, where we travel, whether you know, you're, you're a family person or not, that's what brings us together. And once you can make those connections, then the rest follows. Uh, and so my involvement in the council, I think, was to try to share that message. You know, we're very fortunate to work with an organization, uh, work with and partner with Cambridge, who identifies that need, but also celebrates uh, both the differences, but more importantly, we celebrate our similarities. Oh, that was really well said. I think that explains a lot. For me, my favorite part of it is the inclusion side, making sure that we're a welcoming environment, to your point, for people from with all different backgrounds and perspectives, diversity of thought included. So I really like what you had to say there. Thank you. So you're a really, really busy guy. You speak at various industry events. You do a lot of hands-on training. You just talked about a lot of your digital and marketing efforts that you've got going on. But one of the important things in our business, and you started with some of this, one of your start with the end in mind was to be present for your family and uh, to have some life balance. So let's talk about what your hobbies and interests are outside of the office. Uh, well, two primary ones, so that's a good question. I absolutely love travel. Um, travel to me is, you learn so much through it. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things things about travel that I love is that it stretches your mind, it stretches your perspective. And going back to those connection points and, you know, the similarities versus the differences. I, you know, one quick story is when I was young, I was 24. I did the whole, you know, after college, I knew I wasn't ready for my career. So I bought a backpack and traveled around the world, you know, did the whole, I'm going to go find myself. Uh, it's so cliche. Uh, and I spent some time, I spent one week in India. And in the weekend in India, I remember being there and I didn't like it. It was just too different. I, I was traveling from city to city and it was fascinating, but it was just overwhelming. And it was hours before my flight leaving India that I went and had a meal at a restaurant, um, kind of one of those small street, street vendors sitting there. And the person who was serving me was this older gentleman and I was eating the meal and after kind of like just watching, looking around and all of a sudden this little girl popped out of nowhere with an older son, with an older person behind him. And I obviously made the connection. This is, 
This is the daughter. That is the son. And they came and embraced the old man who was serving me. And I made the connection. Oh, that's his granddaughter. And they embraced and they were smiling. And then the, the father, obviously it was his son, gave him a hug. And I realized then and there that I had made the cardinal mistake that people make when they travel, which is I spent the whole time in India focusing on our differences when I should have been focused on this, the similarities. This was a, a, a family moment. And I remember thinking at the time, for I was in India for a week. I couldn't wait to leave. And at that moment, I couldn't wait to come back. And I said, I got to give this place another, another go. So my passion is travel because I think it teaches us so much about the human condition, teaches us so much about ourselves. And that's a passion. And it's one that I've been fortunate enough to share with my kids. Um, and my kids now, as they've gone old, gotten older, we've discovered that they choose experiences over things so that when the holidays roll around, if we give them a choice and say, hey, we can get you the latest iPad, we can get you, you know, the, the gadgets or the things, or we can take a trip to Colorado or we can take a trip to Mexico, they'll choose the trip 10 times over any other thing that we can give them. And so that's, that's something that we've shared. And then my other passion is I love to grill and barbecue. I like to create, you know, smoked meats and pulled pork and do all that. And um, I think Kim shared in her episode on the podcast that we were building an outside kitchen uh, during the pandemic. And we finally got to use that. And so over the course of the last summer, we had a number of client meals where we invited them over, you know, had some wine, had some, had some, had some pulled, pulled pork, had some nice barbecue and just sat, you know, under the lights with them, uh, entertaining our clients and, and they passed the barbecue test. So if you listen to Kim's podcast, you'll know what that is. They passed the test and, uh, we enjoyed our meals with them. So those are the two passions that I have is travel and, and food. We've heard a lot about Kim and we know that you're a great team, but you've got two children. What are their names and uh, how old are they? So Mika is 21. Uh, she's our daughter who is attending the Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And so we have a shared passion when it comes to music, uh, especially live music. And so it's no surprise that she's pursuing a career in music production and uh, she's off in Boston. She couldn't pick the school further away, but you know, she went to Boston and we love Boston, love that town, great friends, great people. Um, so we love visiting with her. And then our son, Noah, who is a junior in high school right now, he's 17. Um, he's got a year and a half to go. We are now just starting that whole process of doing college visits. It looks like he is being more reasonable in finding a school in California. So he will be closer to home. But he's also pursuing uh, something in entertainment, possibly either film or music. And he's uh, very talented. So obviously, you know, our passions have kind of lent to their passions and their career choices. And so we've always been very supportive of them pursuing it. But what's been great is that they've also seen both, you know, their mom and their dad, you know, build a business and be passionate about it. And they've seen us grow. And so it was exciting. Last year, we brought Mika in during the summer to help us be part of our practice. And she's gained a whole new appreciation for what it means to be a financial professional in the space. 
And we're still, you know, keeping our fingers crossed that perhaps, you know, Noah might take some interest in this business because the one thing he does do very well is connect with people, have friends over. So he definitely has the relationship part down when it comes to this business. The finances, I don't know yet. <laughs> he uh, he spends a lot of money on on gas and, and food. So uh, we'll see. We'll see where this goes. He's got a lot of years to, to change yeah, that. To so figure it out. <laughs> there is hope. There is hope. Yes. Well, Victor, okay. um, we're out of time, but we could probably go on forever and ever because you've got a really interesting life. Congratulations on your success. Um, you and Kim thank have you. definitely built something special. You're a perfect example of Cambridge Stronger. So um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing with us and being a part of our family. Well, thank you, Amy, for the invitation. If I could throw one shout out would be to the RPM, the Real Practice Management. For anybody who's ever thought about being part of it, I joined it a number of years ago. I've been attending the, re the recharge sessions that have been taking place. And um, I think it's really helped me as an advisor in working with people. My uh, RPM brothers are really that. Uh, and so I highly encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, who's at least considered being part of RPM to do it. It's been one of the best things for my career and my ability to connect with other folks in Cambridge who have share, shared interests, who are building their businesses and they're an invaluable resource to me. So I give so much credit to Cambridge for creating RPM and for nurturing that. And the entire crew that you have, the coaches and Brian and his team, outstanding. So it's one of the best things that I've experienced in this space. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. I will pass it on because they love to hear that stuff. So I'm glad that it's been valuable to you and your business. Thank you. All right. Thank you again for spending your time with us. And uh, I look forward to the listeners hearing all about your journey. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. We are Cambridge Stronger.